Phil has a test for you today. He wants everyone to grab their Bible and see how quickly you can find the second verse, 1 Corinthians 11.26. He gave me strict orders to do nothing until I started, so I started to see Bibles coming out. So. <laughs> All right, so what we're going to do is I'm going to read the first uh, couple of verses from John, and then we'll all read the first Corinthians verse together, okay? All right. So the first reading is uh, John chapter 6, verses, uh, oh, you changed it on me. Is it supposed to be 53 to 57? So it's actually 53 to 57. Uh, Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood. You have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of that Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Okay, so now we'll move to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. Okay? Here we go. For whatever you eat this, drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Very well done. The word of the Lord. As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, how often should we do that? Uh, different churches do it in different ways. At Mount Olympus Presbyterian Church, we do this as often as the second Sunday of every month. Some churches do it more frequently, some not as frequently. We also do it at special services throughout the year and in special smaller gatherings. I know our women at the women's retreat every year always have communion together. I know that our elders, most years, we have our last meeting of the year and we share in communion together, your session. Um, we bring communion to our homebound members, many of them elderly, they can't come to us. Sometimes when people are in the hospital, we'll bring communion to them and we will do the Lord's Supper there as well. But in hopes of owning what we do at this table, I'm preaching on various aspects of the Lord's Supper on some of the communion Sundays for the rest of the year. We did our first one last month uh, because let's know what this is. Let's understand why we do it. Let's be faithful to the practice. The bread and the cup represent the flesh and the blood of Jesus Christ. And Jesus gave some promises about what he will do when we eat the flesh and drink the blood. I say what he will do because the promises and what happens here depends on him. Jesus promises that when we share in the bread and drink the cup, he pours his life into us. Jesus promises that when we take the Lord's Supper, 
He will remain in us, and we will remain in him. He will abide in us, and we will abide in him. Jesus is spiritually working through communion. The table is just one of the ways that we keep a connection to Christ. Jesus promises that we have eternal life, life that never ends, and that we will be raised on the last day, the day when Christ raises all those who belong to him and gathers all his people into his kingdom. And Jesus promises that certain spiritual realities will be ours as often as we do this. But what I want to emphasize this morning is that when we do this, we proclaim something. We proclaim something. Paul writes, we read it, that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. To proclaim, that's kind of a high and mighty word. Uh, a proclamation is more than just normal speaking or normal talking, right? It's to announce something, usually something that's big, something that's important. Uh, proclaim is to speak openly, to, to, to speak it maybe rather loudly. In the secular world, in, in Paul's day, proclamation referred to an official report that came from the authorities, often from the government. We've been going through the book of Acts, and interestingly, the word proclaim appears more times in the book of Acts by far than any other book in the Bible. And usually there it means when people are preaching or they're speaking the message of Jesus Christ. And Paul writes that we preach, we speak Jesus when we do this act of eating and drinking together. Actions have words. We do things and they often carry a message. When two people are holding hands, we know that there's affection between those two people in, in one way or another. We don't need someone to tell us that. We see the action and it speaks without words. When uh, an, we stand for someone, uh, when they come into a room, it's a statement of honor. It's a statement of respect. When we get ourselves up in the morning and we go outside of, of our houses on Sunday and we get in the car and we go to church, we're kind of making a statement. Maybe the neighbors say, oh, they're Christians. They're going to church. Um, there's no words, but what we do says something. When we share communion, we're making a statement. We're broadcasting a message, and we are proclaiming his death. What's significant about his death? Well, that's the very heart of our faith. The cross is the defining element of Christianity. Take that away, and there's no Christianity. Our faith is not just about morality. It's not about just being a better, more enlightened person. It's not about any particular issue. The center of our faith is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's remind ourselves, so then, of the power of the cross. First, it is the cross where we are reconciled to God and where we are given peace with God. He's made peace between us and him. Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And in Colossians, and through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. 
As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. We don't have to earn our way with God. We don't have to impress him. We already have peace with him. We are seen differently by God because of the cross. It says we are are blameless. We are seen like without a single fault. I know you don't feel that way this morning. I don't feel that way either. It is the word of God, though, that says that's the way I see you because of the cross. The cross is where God demonstrates his love for us. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. At the cross, the power of the devil is destroyed, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. At the cross, all our sins are nailed there and put to death. God canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. We are forgiven at the cross. We are declared not guilty at the cross. When we speak of the cross, by implication, we're also speaking of the resurrection. We're saying death could not hold Christ down and that he is risen. These are the things we proclaim. We proclaim when we share the bread and the cup. Uh, Proclaiming also involves others, doesn't it? If if someone's going to proclaim something, there's got to be someone to hear it. There's got to be someone to receive it. Otherwise, a proclamation doesn't do much good, does it? Um, in this way, communion, you know, we think, of it as a, we think of it as a private, personal thing. Communion is about me and my relationship to the Lord. Uh, but if we are proclaiming something, then it's more than just about me. It is also about me, but others, and Jesus. The Lord's Supper is a community thing. Communion is personal, but it is not private. It's communal. Paul writes, as often as we do this, we proclaim, we speak the Lord's death. How long do we keep doing this? He says, until, until he comes again. We keep doing this until the Lord returns. There's a future element to the Lord's table. We do it looking back to what Christ did on the cross, but we do it it looking ahead forward to what is still to come. We sang in that, uh, oh, praise the name, he will come blazing in white. We sang of the Lord's return. You know, if you go back and read the Gospels where Jesus first does communion with his disciples in that upper room, I think we know the words about the broken bread and the port cup, but if you read on, he says this, I tell you, he tells his disciples, he says, I will never again drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We do this until Christ comes again. He is not doing this anymore. He's refraining. He's withholding. He is waiting. He is waiting for us. He is waiting until the day when he shares this with us in his Father's kingdom. Scripture often speaks of a heavenly banquet, of a great meal, as symbolic of the final reign, the kingdom of God, the coming together of all of God's people in the new age to come, if you would. The prophet Isaiah speaks of a day when the Lord Almighty 
will prepare a feast of rich food for all people. And the great shroud of death that has enfolded all people will be lifted and death will be swallowed up forever, Isaiah said. And at that feast, the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove people's disgrace. That's one way it's spoken about. Jesus said, a day will come when people from east and west and north and south will come and sit at the table in the kingdom of God. Imagine that. From everywhere they will come, he said. And in uh, the book of Revelation, there's yet another reference to uh, in this vision where all of heaven is celebrating the salvation and the victory of God, there's this uh, vision and, and it says, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb, to the great banquet of the Lamb. A day will come when we will share a banquet with the Lord in his kingdom. I don't know how that will happen. I don't know how that will look like. I can't even imagine the scope of the grandeur of that time. I don't think anybody can. But the Lord's word is that it will happen and that Jesus is waiting for us. He has been waiting a long time. With this meal, we proclaim a day when the Lord Jesus Christ will reveal himself to, again. As he said, on that day, he will raise all those who have died in him. He will gather with him all those who are still alive, and we will be together with the Lord. All wrongs will be put to rights. Death will be no more. Pain will be no more. Hurt will be no more. We will be with the Lord. And when that great feast to celebrate life everlasting takes place, Jesus will drink of the fruit of the vine again with us. This is also part of what we proclaim when we do this. We might think of the Lord's Supper this way. The Lord's Supper points backwards in that it points to what has happened, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We proclaim backwards. At the Lord's Supper, we proclaim forwards. We proclaim the coming of Christ, his coming kingdom, we proclaim a day when we will all be gathered with him. At the Lord's Supper, we proclaim inward. We proclaim that our hearts are the Lord's, that his spirit lives in us. We proclaim outward. At the Lord's table, we proclaim that we are the body of Christ. We are the church. Christian life is not just about me, but there's one body, one faith, one hope, one baptism that I share with others. And together we belong to God's people. And when we proclaim the Lord's, when we do the Lord's Supper, we proclaim upward as well. We speak of the reality of God and a world beyond this world of touch and sight, that Christ reigns, that there is more than just this world. When we share the Lord's Supper, we're making a statement. N.T. Wright, an Anglican bishop in England, a world-renowned theologian, gave uh, goes so far as to say that the statement we make when we share in communion extends beyond this physical world to the spiritual world. And he said, communion is not simply an occasion for Christian devotion and fellowship, but a powerful statement to the world at large and perhaps particularly to the rulers and authorities who put Jesus on the cross, not realizing that this would bring about their own downfall. It is the announcement of Jesus' death, and through Jesus' death, the powers are defeated, and people who were enslaved to them are rescued. 
It's an action which speaks louder than words. That is a whole nother dimension to this. In a sense, the church preaches the gospel when we do this. It's a way for eyes to see. It's a way for ears to hear. There's a story of a, a pastor, and one night they had a Sunday evening uh, church. This was a church uh, on the California coast at a, at a big port city. And um, ships from all over the world would come and would dock at that port. And a large group of visitors from the International Seamen's Center came into the church that particular night, and the pastor realized these were visitors, they were from all over the world, uh, from these ships, and probably the knowledge of English would be a little bit limited. And a large part of the service was also dedicated to the Lord's Supper that night. Well, a couple of weeks later, the pastor uh, received a note from the chaplain of that group about how meaningful that service had been to the seamen who came that night. Uh, he said their, their limited English made it hard to understand some of the sermon and some of the praying and the singing, but he said they were easily able to grasp the Lord's Supper. The symbolism, what was done, it was, it, it was like a sermon for their eyes. I heard uh, another pastor, Bruce Milne, who was uh, the pastor of First Baptist Church in Vancouver, British Columbia for many years. I heard him tell a story of a young Japanese man who um, came to visit his church one Sunday morning. Didn't mean to visit his church, but this is what happened. The young man uh, was from Japan. He was studying in Canada. And he was out, he wanted to see the city of Vancouver one morning, and so he was out on a Sunday morning walking around the streets, and he saw this interesting-looking building, and um, if you know anything about Japan, the Christianity is not, it's a very small minority, it's like 2% or less. It's been that way for a long time, and churches are not uh, common things. And this young man knew nothing about Christianity. He never heard, he didn't know, he didn't know anything. Well, he saw the building, he thought it was a museum. So he walked into the church thinking it's a museum, and uh, he thought it was a strange-looking museum, but um, he, uh, he, he walked in, and, and, and he saw other people sitting down, like we are here, and, and so he thought he'd do the same. thought, well, maybe there's a presentation going on that I need to see, so um, the service began, and music and things, so this is interesting, and um, the service went on, and he realized, well, he should probably stay. And uh, he heard about Christ, and, and he heard about things he'd never heard before. He said, wow, this is, this is new. And then there was communion that morning. And he saw all the people that had come to the museum uh, eat this small piece of bread and drink this little cup of juice. And so he did too. And he thought it was it was. Kind of interesting, and, and he was attractive. He said, this was kind of nice that people do this together, whatever it is. Uh, and he learned, well, this is, this is a church. Oh, okay, this is what they do in churches. Well, he, he, something was awakened in him. And he came back. And he came back again. And he began to hear, and he began to learn, he began to be drawn in, and eventually he, he came to Christ and became a Christian. The very act of doing this carries a message. A woman proclaims her love for a man by giving him a wedding ring. 
A neighbor proclaims care and compassion for uh, someone in her neighborhood who has, died, who has experienced death by bringing a meal to that family in their grief. A friend proclaims honor and support for another friend by coming to the graduation ceremony. And the church proclaims the death of our Lord Jesus Christ when we take the bread and when we drink this cup. We proclaim it to one another. We proclaim it to the world. We proclaim it to heaven and to earth. As we share the Lord's Supper this morning, we're going to do it a little differently. This morning as we share the Lord's Supper, we're going to make a big circle around this sanctuary. In the front, corner, sides, all the way in the back. And we're going to do that as a symbol of proclaiming to one another what we do at this table. When we're in a circle, we're going to be able to look at one another, see one another, talk to one another, if you would. And that's why we're going to do it in a circle. In just a minute, um, Heather's going to come up and we're going to sing. We're going to play some music. We have another song. And, and as we do that, uh, the servers, our communion servers, will come up. They'll start the circle here in the front with me and just come down and fill in. And just get up as we're singing. Keep singing. We'll worship and, and make a circle all around this room. If there's some people with mobility issues or it's hard for you to get there, we'll just take, take your time. We'll help them get to the sides. And if you can't stand in a circle for the rest of the service, um, feel free to just take a seat on the side somewhere or, or in the back or to just find a seat around the outside of the circle. Even if you don't profess faith in Christ and you're just visiting with us and won't take the bread or the cup, we're glad you're here and we welcome you still to be a part of that circle, please. So as we begin to sing, stand up. Um, servers will come and they will, they will serve us when we get to that time. I'll talk about how we do that. But let's proclaim to one another and let's celebrate now the Lord's table. Um, Heather, would you come? Just begin some music.